Good morning, ladies. Many of you are familiar with the phrase identity theft. It's sort of a new phrase that has made its way into our vocabulary in the modern age. Identity theft is indeed the most common type of fraud reported to the Federal Trade Commission. In 2019, there were 650,572 cases of identity theft. That's shocking to me. By definition, identity theft is what occurs when someone steals your personal information and uses it. And of course, we know that the motivation for that is some sort of personal gain. They pretend to be you, and they do that because they want to profit by being you. There's a personal gain, and usually, of course, that's financial gain. If you've ever gone through identity theft, it's a challenge, I know. I've, heard, I've, I've read many horror stories about the challenges that people go through to clear their name. Well, none of us ever, I hope, go through identity theft, and I hope none of you have ever experienced it. But all of us can experience a positive change in identity by being declared righteous by faith. We get that new identity that can only be found by our identity being found in Jesus Christ. It comes not by wages, not by earning it, but it comes completely by gift. We have talked the last couple of weeks about sin, the last three weeks about sin, and we have learned the sobering reality, the bad news, that we are so bad that the only way we could receive righteousness is for it to be given to us by gift. It's not purchased by us, it's not earned, to us, earned by us, but it is given to us by Jesus Christ. It's sort of identity theft in reverse. When God looks at us, he no longer sees Laura and all her sin, he sees Jesus covering her sin. With identity, with identity theft, usually accounts are emptied. What was there is gone. But in Christ, our account is not only wiping away our sin, but it's credited with something else, something far more valuable and far more eternal than money. It's righteousness. That's the theme of Romans. We found as we go around our small group questions, especially today, I said it's sort of like in two-year-old Sunday school class where every question is framed and, and designed so that the answer is always Jesus, and we train those two and three and four-year-olds to always answer G Jesus. Well, when we study Romans, it seems like almost every answer is righteousness. We know that we are found righteous, we are declared righteous through grace by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's going to be our theme for today as it is really throughout the book of Romans. I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as we read just the first five verses this time in the book of Romans. Here we go, ladies. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Ladies, thank you for standing in honor of God's word. You may be seated. Let's just pray as we begin. Lord God Almighty, 
Thank you for the book of Romans and the powerful truths that we are learning as we study verse by verse and chapter by chapter through this amazing book. Lord, so many familiar truths, so many things that we have heard, many of us since we were children. But Lord, help us study these familiar passages in light of our fresh eyes and our new circumstances. And let us be all the more grateful as women of God that we are declared righteous by grace through faith in the person of Jesus. I pray that today's message would challenge all of us to be joyful and grateful for our righteousness and to walk in light of our, of our new identity found in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, chapter 4, our topic is justification by faith. We've just wrapped up three hard weeks as we've talked about guilt and we've talked about sin and we've embraced that bad news. And we learned that one of the big words we learned was justification, justification by faith. And we're going to unpack that some this week and even a little more next week. But it's interesting that when Paul wanted to move into this chapter and he wanted to look for an example from Jewish history, he chose the two what I call Jewish rock stars of the faith. He looked back and he decided, let's talk about Abraham and let's talk about David. He used these two key historical figures from their heritage to explain justification by faith, not works. Abraham was their father, Father Abraham, and David was the great king of Israel. And so every Jewish person would be well familiar with these two key figures. In fact, even the Gospel of Matthew, we know if you're a student of the New Testament that the Gospel of Matthew was written to the Jewish people. And so Matthew, being a good Jew himself, when he was making his case that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, and he opened up chapter 1 with presenting the pedigree of Jesus and, and laying out the lineage of Christ. Chapter 1 and verse 1 in Matthew's gospel to the Jews begins this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew knew it. All the Jews knew it. Paul knew it. In the lineage of Christ, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, would say something to the Jewish people. These were their two heroes. So it's interesting that Paul chose these two when he wanted to explain justification by faith and not works, primarily to his Jewish audience. Every Jewish person would know these two greats from history. So I think it was very brilliant of Paul to choose these two men to make his case for justification by faith and not works. Paul states his truth right up front. He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then he's going to go on to unpack this truth. He wraps up by repeating it again. First here, he has it in verse 3, and he comes back to it again in chapter 4, verse 22. It's saying this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. We see that phrase repeated. He's also quoting all the way back to Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. His Jewish audience, again, would be very familiar with this phrase. It was credited to him as righteousness. They knew it. They had probably memorized it. They had heard it many times. But just like us, sometimes it's those familiar verses and those familiar phrases that we need to grab hold of, that we need to stop and push the pause button and just camp out there for a little bit and allow the Spirit of God to take that Word of God and convict us and teach us. We need our, our hearts and our minds challenged as we consider with fresh eyes and fresh insight 
the verses that perhaps we memorized as children and they're just in there by rote, but really embracing what they mean. And what is the implication? What is the sweet, glorious news of the gospel that is found in this phrase? It was credited to him as righteousness. The word credited is actually an accounting term. This CPA loved to hear that. It may be translated in, in your version of the Bible as credited or reckoned or counted. But whether you say God counted it or God reckoned it or God counted it to him, it is righteous righteousness. And so what that means is that Abraham is getting credit for something that he doesn't have, that he doesn't bring, that he could never manufacture or produce on his own. His belief in God is getting his account credited for something that he doesn't have on his own. And then Paul is going to go on and talk for a little bit about what righteousness is not. And so he opens up in verses 4 and 5 to first make it clear righteousness is not wages. There's a big distinction between the righteousness that is credited to us, that was credited to Abraham and credited to us, and wages. He says in verses 4 and 5, now the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. You don't, you cannot ever earn righteousness. And he distinguishes righteousness from wages. He says wages are an obligation of an employer to an employee. Now, I have had a job since I was in sixth or seventh grade. My first job was a babysitter. Later, I worked in a little country grocery store, checking out where it was the old-timey punch the buttons to ring up the, the, the uh, um the groceries and the things people were buying. I had to calculate the sales tax in my head. The, the sales tax was only 3% back then in West Virginia, back in the dark ages. I went on to work in the, at the savings and loan as a bank teller. I worked there all through college. I would go home and work fall break, Christmas break, spring break, all summer. Uh, later in college, I had three or four jobs at one time. I worked when I was out. I worked part-time as a mom. I've always sort of had a job. And that sort of defined my life. But never once in all those years of working have I ever had an employer come to me on Friday or on payday and say, Laura, you've worked so hard this week, and I'm so grateful for you. I want to give you this gift and hand me a paycheck and refer to it as a gift. I would probably be insulted if, or, or at least confused if that had happened because I worked hard. My parents trained me with a strong work ethic. And the paycheck that I would get on Friday was what I was owed. It's what I had earned. It's what I expected. And I usually had calculated down to the penny what that paycheck would be. <laughs> so um, so that Paul is saying this is different than wages. Now, there is a value to hard work. I'm going to step aside from the righteousness by faith and put on my mommy school hat for a minute and talk about, just briefly, to you young mommies that still have children at home, about the value of a work ethic. Because I think when we come across topics like that, maybe it's good to sort of push pause and, and sort of weave that in. My very first job, I was reminded, thinking about that babysitting job. I was in sixth or seventh grade, and I was babysitting for two little boys in my hometown in West Virginia. And my mother, my parents, weren't believers when I was a little girl. They both are now. But they did one important thing for me. They trained and raised me up with a strong work ethic. Myself and my other three siblings were all 
trained and taught to work hard. And so my mother gave me a strong lecture when she was dropping me off that first week to work. And she said, now, Laura Ann, that woman is working home, away from home all day long. And she, she's going to be tired when she gets home. And you're there to take care of those two little boys, but I want you to give, take care of her house as well. If she leaves dirty dishes in the sink, I want you to wash them. If there's laundry in a basket, you are to fold it. You are to leave that house better than you find it. You have that house picked up and swept and dusted. When she gets home and she's tired, you have that house ready for her. And uh, I just agreed, and I did that. And when that lady came home, I had done all that, and she left supper dishes for me to clean up and all sorts of things. But here's what happened the first week, and I've never forgotten this. On Friday, when she took me home, and those were long days. She had to drive to Charleston, West Virginia to work, so my mom would drop me off at 7, and she would bring me home at about 6. But when she drove me home that first week, I was making and you younger girls are going to laugh at this, my wages were $5 a day. <laughs> I don't think I'm that old, but I was making $5 a day. So on Friday, when she dropped me off and she was writing a check to pay me, instead of making my check for $25, she made it for $30. And in my mind, that 20% bonus was worth its weight in gold. I would have, you would have thought I'd been given a $100 bonus. She said, my husband said to pay you more because you had done such a good job of not only taking care of the boys, but taking care of the house. And all these years later, I have never forgotten that, that my mother's training was true, that when you work hard, it brings a profit, that I was blessed for my hard work. So ladies and mommies, what I have to say to you is this. Every child is not going to come the same as far as academic ability or uh, sports ability or musical talent, but we mommies can make sure that all of them know how to work. No matter how talented they are or what their IQ is or anything else, they can all be taught to work well. And so in those days, I understood what wages were and I understood what I deserved and even what I earned by working hard. But righteousness is not wages. And Paul makes that very clear. He makes a distinction here between righteousness and wages. Righteousness does not, does not come by wages. Righteousness can never be earned. And it also, it, it is always a gift. But it also, it doesn't come by wages. And it also does not come by circumcision. Romans 4, 9 and 10 says, Is this blessedness only for the circumcised? Or is it also, or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? And then he says, it was not after, but before. And there's an exclamation point there. Paul is making his case. You Jews who seem to claim some special privilege by your circumcision, Righteousness has nothing to do with that. He reminds his readers, Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised. Abraham, if we go back to Genesis, was circumcised in Genesis chapter 17, but declared righteous in Genesis chapter 15. His righteousness preceded his circumcision, and therefore, circumcision was not a prerequisite for righteousness. Circumcision is merely an outward sign of an inward faith. It's an outward indication of what has happened on the inside. Our application might be to ask ourselves, 
if we are relying on any outward seals or signs to somehow save us or, or have us declared righteous. For us, it, it might be baptism or communion, for example. Those are ordinances that we observe because we have been declared righteous by faith, but neither baptism nor partaking of the Lord's Supper can ever save us. So whether or not we have a scar on the outside, what really matters is that our hearts have been circumcised. Paul wrote in Romans 2.29 that real circumcision is of the heart and it's by the spirit. The outward behaviors mean nothing if the heart has not changed. I, was, I read somewhere recently in a commentary about the wedding band analogy. You know, many of you in this room are married or, or you, you were married and, and maybe your spouse is now in heaven and you're, you're widowed. But the wedding band is usually an outward indication of a relationship of marriage. But if, if there were two choices for your husband, if the two choices were to have him wear the wedding band but then to, and have the outward appearance, but to go off and behave any way and to be unfaithful, or to not wear the wedding band but to remain faithful, I think all of us would say, I would rather be married to a man that doesn't wear the outward sign but chooses to walk in faithfulness to me. So therefore, the outward indication is really sort of meaningless unless there's been a heart change on the inside. So the question that I have for each of you is, has your heart been changed? Has it been crossed by Jesus Christ? This logo is the logo that I chose to, to depict the, the ministry that I feel called to do. Cross My Heart Ministry is, is depicted this way because I want it to be clear that my heart has been crossed, circumcised, if you will. My heart has been changed by Jesus Christ. And this logo denotes that my life and all that I am and all that I do on the outside is only the result of the change that Jesus has done on the inside. Jesus has crossed my heart. Jesus has circumcised my heart. My heart is changed on the inside because of him. And everything that happens on the outside is just a result of that. Has your heart been changed by Jesus Christ? The outward behaviors may be the result of that change, but the outward behaviors can never ever change our hearts on the inside. Our truth is the woman of God has a circumcised heart. She is a woman of God because her heart has been crossed. It's been changed. It's been circumcised because she has believed. She has accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior. Through grace by faith, she has been saved. Has your heart been crossed? Have you believed God? Have you confessed your sin and been declared righteous. It is grace through faith and not by works that we are declared righteous. Righteousness, Paul said, does not come by wages, it does not come by circumcision, and it does not come from the law. Verses 13 to 15, Paul writes this in chapter 4. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Faith, and we talked about this last week, does not come by observing the law. We could never, ever be declared righteous 
by observing the law. We learned last week that all the law can do, all the law was ever intended to do, is to reveal our sin. It's like looking into a mirror and seeing that the bad news really is bad. It reveals our sin, the law does, but it can never do anything to remove it. And again, Paul reminds us, look at the timeline. When did the law come? The law came many generations, many years after Abraham. The law was given through Moses. It came in Moses' time. Abraham lived and was declared righteous by faith long, long before the law was given. So after Paul lays out his very logical case, he makes his case very clearly, makes all of his points. After making it clear what does not bring righteousness, he then goes on to unpack what does bring righteousness. It's faith. And he, t- he points out, he uses Abraham's life. We're going to go through a little mini biography of Abraham's life. He makes it clear. He, he takes us to the passage. In, in, uh, we're going to look at the passage in Genesis 11 where Abraham was called. Now, Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldeans. We looked at some different passages this week in our study where we learned that Abraham's people were idolaters. They didn't worship Almighty God. And, but God reached out to this idolaterer, and he called him in Genesis 12. And he said this to him, leave everything behind, everything familiar and secure, and I'll basically tell you later where to go. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. He says, leave and go. And Abraham obeyed and went. He said, I'll tell you later where you're going. Just leave and go. But when God made this promise to Abraham, it also came with a great promise. He he said to him, oop, I think I went too far. He said to him in verses 2 and 3, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God basically says, Abraham, I'm going to use you to bless the whole world. And of course, we know now, with the hindsight of history, that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. Abraham not only heard God, but he believed him. He believed God, and his belief in God prompted obedience to God. He left as God instructed. Abraham obeyed and went, and he was 75 years old when life sort of started over for Abraham. Now, Abraham's journey was not without a couple of detours. He didn't always live out his faith and obedience, but that never changed God's promise. God was always and ever faithful. Time goes on. We get to Genesis 15, and Abraham and Sarah, they're not getting any younger, and there's still no baby. And so Abraham comes before God with this sort of honesty that's so refreshing. You know, to know that when we are in those hard places, we don't have to get our act together before we come before Almighty God. He knows all about it anyway. There's something so refreshing and so real about spreading those hard things out before God. And so Abraham comes to God and he says, he's remembered his promise all these years. He's believed him, but he says, you've given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Abraham reaches the only possible conclusion that he can. If I don't have children, time has gone on. Is the promise going to be fulfilled through my servant? He's, it, but 
is the servant going to inherit? But God says no, Abraham. And he takes him outside and he has him look up and he uses the, the, the starlit sky as an object lesson. He takes him outside and, and God says this, look up at the sky, Abraham. Look up and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to them, so shall your offspring be. He confirmed the promise. I haven't forgotten, Abraham. I'm confirming my promise to you. Ultimately, Abram's offspring are not only those who are Jewish, not only those that are down through his physical lineage, but those who are declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. You and I then, ladies, are Abraham's offspring because our identity is in Jesus Christ. So there he stands, this old man married to an old woman, and he's hearing God repeat his promise. And again, Abraham hears, and Abraham believes. Verse 6, right after God says that, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham's belief, all these years later, I'm going to continue to believe you, God. I'm going to continue to believe. Time goes on. And then chapter 16 opens up with Sarah getting involved. So Sarah decides that it's time to come up with a little plan to help God along and to, to move along this promise. She's waited long enough. So Sarah decides to sort of come up with her own plan. There's a lot or a little bit of manipulation and meddling going on here, and not that any wife in this room could identify. Uh, but um, Sarah says this to her husband. The Lord has kept me from having children, so go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, ladies, no matter how long the biological clock is ticking, it's hard to imagine any woman, any wife, thinking that this was a good idea. Um, but the rest of the verse might not be so surprising. It says this, Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> so Abraham believed God, but at the same time, he took his eyes off God. And he may have faltered, and he may have followed this poor advice from his wife, but God still remained faithful. Abraham did have some ups and downs, but through it all, Abraham continued to believe. And aren't we really grateful that there can be ups and downs in the life of a person who declares their faith and declares their belief in God, but still sort of has a circuitous route in that journey of obedience? Paul writes this in Romans 4.18. Against all hope, Abram in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. And that's precisely, ladies, what faith, what genuine belief in God is. It's prying our eyes off our helpless and what often feels like a hopeless situation and choosing instead to fix our eyes on God, to shift from looking outside at the horizontal and instead to get vertical. You know, Abraham had many, many reasons to be without hope. Romans 4.19 tells us, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Abraham's human hopeless condition was his body was as good as dead. He's 100 years old and, and his wife's womb is dead. She's way past menopause. From a human standpoint, this ain't happening. His human condition was absolutely hopeless. But in faith, Abraham 
continued to believe God. He refused to allow human physical circumstances to dictate his reality. Even though his human condition was hopeless, verses 20 to 21 say this, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. You and I must absolutely do the same in our hard circumstances. When we wrestle with the challenges and the hopelessness all around us, we too must pry our eyes off that horizontal look. We must look away from those hopeless circumstances and fix our eyes and fix our hearts and fix our minds on the God of hope, the God of possibility, God of possibilities. When there is no way, we must look to the way maker. When the circumstances look impossible, we must look to the God of possibilities. And when all looks hopeless, we must look to the God of hope, the God who can do anything, the God who can change everything. Are you ready to choose to hope against all hope, to believe God like Abraham and to declare like Gabriel did to Mary, the mother of Jesus, for with God nothing will be impossible? Do you believe that? Have you experienced that? We look down, we look around, we think about how long we've waited, and we say, there's just no way. But we look up, and we fix our eyes on Jesus, and we know and we believe that he will make a way. Because he is the way, and he is the truth, and he is the life. The woman of God believes God. Do you believe God? Do you believe his word? When circumstances are difficult or impossible or hopeless, when there is so much that we do not do, that, that we just do not know, that we cannot do, that we cannot change, I find in those hard places, it's helpful to declare what we do know. In times of uncertainty, when we don't understand what is happening, we can't figure out why God is allowing it to happen. When we're in that place of experiencing a crisis of faith, knowing and believing that God is all-powerful, knowing that he could do this with his pinky finger and make it all go away and fix everything because he is sovereign, and we, we wonder, why does he not? Where are you, God? Why are you not working? You would get glory for this. Here's my suggestion for how we can have a happily, happily ever after ending here, and I would give you praise. And yet he waits and he tarries, and we keep praying and we keep believing. And so here's what I find it very helpful to do. In those places of waiting and not knowing and wondering and not knowing what he's doing or why he's allowing it to happen, what we can do, ladies, is declare in those hard places what we do know to be true, to repeat it and pray it and say it out loud and declare it. God is faithful. God keeps his promises. God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing, and he is almighty. My God is great. And then we declare God is loving, and God is merciful, and God is compassionate. God is good. God sees me. God knows. He knows me. God loves me. God is for me. I know this to be true. None of this that I am experiencing caught him by surprise. I may not know how all this will work out. I may know not the timing of all the where's and what for's and when's, but I know him and he is enough.
I know how my story ends. I am his. I have been declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. It is by grace through faith. That is the goodness, glorious sweetness of the gospel message. I know how my story ends. Have you been declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ? We come to him initially for saving faith, but that faith grows as we walk in obedience and continue to believe him in, especially in, challenging circumstances. Because here's the reality from the old lady that's lived many years on this planet, longer than many of you, is that hard times do serve a purpose. Hard times grow and deepen and confirm our faith. Why did God wait so long to fulfill his promise to send Abraham a son? You know, he could have done it the next month or the next week or, or the next year. Did that waiting serve a purpose? I believe it did. I believe it did. Certainly it ensured that that baby was nothing short of a miracle, right? His body and Sarah's body were as good as dead. The fulfillment of that promise was divine. It brought great glory to God because God did what was hopeless and what was physically and humanly impossible. And the delay also, though, provided time for Abraham's faith to be tested, for Abraham's faith in God to grow. Are you like Abraham? Are you waiting on God? Will you continue to wait well? Will you continue to believe God regardless of your circumstances, knowing that come what may, your identity is in Jesus Christ. He is your hope for today, and he is your unchanging, sure hope for tomorrow. We have been declared righteous in him. We have, we have a new identity. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ. We are declared righteous by faith in Christ. Ladies, let's pray. Father, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the new identity we have because of what you did in your obedience to the cross. Thank you, God, that when you see us, you no longer see our sin, but you see Jesus. Jesus, the, the justification, the redemption, the propitiation for our sin. Thank you for this new identity that we have. Father, today there are perhaps women in this room, including myself, who like Abraham are waiting. There are things that we are waiting for you to answer, prayers we have prayed waiting for you to answer. Father, help us to wait well. Help us to wait in faith. Help us to wait faithfully and with confidence that you are the way maker. You are the God of hope. You are the God of possibilities. And in the midst, God, of so much that we do not know, as we pray those secret, private prayers, waiting and hoping, we will choose to be women of God who declare in the midst of our suffering and our waiting what we do know, that you are faithful, you are loving, you are good, you are the way maker. You are the promise keeper. You are loving and compassionate and powerful and almighty. You are great and you are good. And it's in you that we know that we are declared righteous. We pray this in the powerful, sweet, blessed, holy name of Jesus Christ, God, your son and our savior. Amen. Amen. Ladies, have a blessed week. Your new identity is in Christ.